ago, I heard a story about a village that was either in Brazil or Africa that had largely accepted the gospel. And since entire families lived in one-room huts, they would walk out to the jungle to have time alone to pray. And over time, they wore out paths leading from their hut to their place of prayer. When one villager would see the grass growing on another believer's path, they would go to them and say, there's grass on your path as a way to talk to them about their their lacking prayer life. You know, it'd be rare for someone in our culture to do that. We just aren't that involved in one another's lives. There's the very thought of doing this makes many of us uncomfortable. We're afraid of coming across as judgmental. We're afraid of coming across as unloving. And and really, we just kind of think that it's not really any of our business. But what if we're wrong? What if going to someone who was straying in their relationship with Jesus was not judgmental? What if going to someone who was straying in their relationship with Jesus was actually one of the most loving things that we could do? What if going to another believer who's straying in their relationship with Jesus is actually a part of our responsibility to one another? Let's see what Scripture has to say. Open your Bible to Galatians chapter 6, page 893. I ask you to stand when you find that to honor the reading of God's Word. Galatians 6 and 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of, gen- in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Title of the message this morning is Bear One Another's Burdens. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we need you today to do a work in our lives. We need you today to speak to us through your word and help us to understand what you have for us here. Help us, Father, to understand that this word is is both true and practical. Help us to understand that this word applies to us as individuals. Help us, Father, to to have the courage to do what your word tells us to do. Help us, Father, to receive this into our lives. Let it bring forth fruit that would bring glory to your name. Lord, we've come today with a variety of cares and concerns, and we need you to help us to lay them aside so that we can focus on you. We need you, God, to to help us to just have a laser-like focus on what you have for us today. Let our hearts be submissive to you, to your word, to your spirit. Help us, Father, to, to have ears to hear and hearts that would obey. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your word and your ways for your glory. We love you, Lord. You are wonderful. You are amazing and you are awesome. Let our response to your word declare all of these things with our lives. We ask this in the mighty and precious name, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. But you may be seated. 
Notice that Paul starts this section with the word brethren. He's clearly addressing the church. And with this, he addresses the problem of individual sin by pointing out there is a corporate responsibility. So while Christians may sin individually, his or her sin, it affects the body as a whole. And so the whole body is responsible in some way to respond to it. Now, the word that he talks about with overtaken in a sin is interesting. But the word overtaken, it carries with it the idea of a believer that really is not just that they've done it, but it pictures someone who has almost become enslaved again to sin. But the picture isn't that we see a, another believer and they, maybe they slip up in a word or an action that they say or that they do. But the picture instead is that they are, they are beginning a lifestyle of sin. They are beginning to make this sin a habitual, regular part of their lives. They are once again beginning to live as though they are guided and enslaved by their sinful nature. Now, the reason that this is important is that there is no church and there is no person that is sinless. We are all have the propensity to sin. We, we all still struggle with our sinful nature. And the best of us at times fail and give in to the desires of our sinful nature. So the picture here isn't a person who's striving to live for Jesus, but occasionally slips up. The picture is that of a believer who has really given up living for Jesus and has gone wholeheartedly into their sin. And it's important also to notice that Paul doesn't give any sort of specific sin. Right? He doesn't name any sort of carnal sin. He doesn't name anything that we might refer to as a big sin. And the reason for that is because he intends that we would understand all sin would fall into here. Not just the carnal sins, not just what we would call the big sins, but even what would be culturally acceptable sins. I mean, you know, there are some sins that are socially acceptable in our day, even among Christians, it seems. But if we're overtaken even by those sins, that's a problem. And we don't have time to get into all the sin it would cover, but it would it would cover gossip as well as fornication. It would cover pride as well as adultery. It would cover selfishness as well as pornography. It would cover racism as well as anything else. Anytime sin dominates our life, we are overcome. We are overtaken by that sin. Now, how do we respond when a brother or sister is overcome by sin? Well, there's lots of ways people tend to respond. I've seen people gossip about those who are overtaken by sin. I've seen believers criticize those who are overtaken by sin, ostracize those who are overtaken by sin, belittle those who are overtaken by sin. And while those are common ways, what is the right way? What are we actually supposed to do? We're supposed to seek to restore them, to restore those who have been overtaken by sin. Now, the word restore is important. Because restore, it doesn't carry with it the idea of condemnation. Right? Restore, it doesn't carry with it the idea of belittle. Restore doesn't carry with it the idea of telling everyone else about it. Restore carries with it the idea of going to the person 
so that we can talk to them and help restore them back to their relationship with Jesus Christ. We aren't going to condemn them. We aren't going to convict them. We aren't going to tell them how sorry that they are. We're going to help them get back on the right path. To help them reestablish the relationship with Jesus that they have let slip in their lives. Now notice who it is that's supposed to do this. You who are spiritual. Now you who are spiritual, it would refer to those who are spiritually mature. It would refer to those who have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's a spiritual person right there. A spiritual person bears the fruit of the Spirit. A spiritual person is led on a moment-by-moment basis by the Holy Spirit. A spiritual person is one that is actively fighting to crucify their own sinful nature. And that is, that is the person that is supposed to go to a believer that is overtaken in sin. Now, what we might want to do if we see a believer, because the idea of going to someone to restore them is a, is a difficult concept. Fear-filled concept at times. So what we'll do is we'll say, well, those who are spiritual. And I don't meet those qualifications. And let me say it's good to be self-aware. I mean, it's good to recognize the fruit of the Spirit isn't evident in your life. It's good to recognize that you haven't. You aren't fighting to crucify the flesh. You aren't walking in a moment by moment being led of the Spirit. It's great. Be aware of it. But also understand that the spiritual believer is meant to be the normal believer. Each and every one of us, we are meant to be the spiritual believer. We are all meant to bear the fruit of the Spirit. We are all meant to crucify the flesh. We are all meant to walk in a moment by moment being led of the Spirit. None of us are meant to be conceited, to provoke one another, envying one another. We're all supposed to be the spiritual believer. So if we're not there right now, that's great. Be aware of that. But don't settle there. Don't stay there. Don't use that as a consistent reason not to get involved in somebody else's life. Don't say over and over again, well, I'm just not a spiritual person. If you're not a spiritual person today, do something about it so that next week you can be a spiritual person. If you're not a spiritual person today and next year you're not a spiritual person, there is a problem with us. None of us are meant to be the person that can't go to someone. We are all meant to be spiritual. Bear the fruit, follow the spirit, crucify the flesh. Every believer, regardless of age, is meant to be able to do this. Now, as we go, we are to go in the spirit of of gentleness. Gentleness is the opposite of of harshness. We we don't go and begin to lay into them on how terrible they are, how sorry they are, how horrible they are. Our goal isn't to break them. Our goal is to restore them. But why do we go in the spirit of gentleness? Considering 
yourself. You know why we go in the spirit of gentleness? Because we're aware of our own depravity. We can go to a brother or a sister that's overtaken in a fault in a spirit of gentleness because we know we also wrestle with sin in our hearts. And at times our sinful nature, it wins. And at times our sinful nature, it pulls us away. We know there but by the grace of God go I. So we can always, if we, if we can't go in a spirit of gentleness, but only in a spirit of self-righteousness, it is because we are not nearly as self-aware as we think we are. It is good for all of us to be aware of our own personal propensity to sin. To read Jeremiah 17 about the wickedness of our own heart and to say, yes, oh, oh yes, mercy, that's me. And when we are aware of that, we go not with pride and not with self-righteousness and not with judgment, but in mercy and in grace and in love. He says that to do this, we are bearing one another's burdens, bearing one another's burdens. What a great picture. The picture of bearing one another's burdens is that of someone carrying a burden they cannot carry themselves. It's a picture of someone having something on them that is so heavy that they are unable to do it on their own and they are collapsing underneath it, that it is, it is crushing them in their lives. When I think about this, I think about the many times in, in road marches in the army. When we would do road marches, we had to carry 50-pound packs. And there were some guys who were either new or something happened and, and they weren't able to go on. But we, when they couldn't go on, we didn't just leave them. I mean, we didn't just like, well, sorry about your luck, dude. I hope you make it. But no, we, we never left a fallen comrade in the hands of the enemies. If he, if he went down, somebody had to help him to get there. Somebody had to help him get to the finish line. So you know what we did? But we didn't kick them and we didn't cuss them. What we did was we began to, to take stuff out of their pack. Okay, you, come here. Here, you take this and I'll take that and you take this and you take that. And we lightened their load so that we could bear one another's burdens. Because at that moment, maybe I could be strong when he was weak. Because at some point in the future, man, I was going to be weak and I need somebody else to be strong. I would help bear his burden. Right? It would help get him to the finish line. It wouldn't leave him into the hands of the enemy that would kill him or destroy him. That's what we're to do for one another. Man, the, the weight of sin, that is an overwhelming weight. If you as a believer have ever been overcome, you know that's a burden. In my life, I have been a believer that has overcome with sin. And I could put on a good face in public. I could sit in church and I could smile and I could act like everything was okay. And I would tell people, no. I don't feel guilty at all about the way that I'm living. No, God must be okay with it because He hasn't dealt with me at all about it. Yes, I, I know what the Bible says, but I, I just don't think that applies to me. I, I don't feel bad. Then I would go home. I would be alone. And I would think, oh my gosh, this is the most miserable life ever. When it was just me and my sin. 
Oh, I felt burdened. Oh, I felt overwhelmed and crushed by it all. How good it was to have brethren who would come alongside me and say, I still love you. I understand. You know this isn't right. You need to turn back to Jesus. You need to lay that aside and and move forward in your relationship with Christ. That's what we're to do. We're to bear one another's burdens. There are going to be times where someone here is weak and they need someone else to be strong for them. And we can do that because we know that there's going to be times when we're weak and we're going to need someone else to be strong for us. We bear one another's burdens and we so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ we talked about last week, that you love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians 5 and 14, the law is fulfilled in even one word. You shall love, the, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's it. We love one another. And so we bear one another's burdens. And a part of bearing one another's burdens It is getting involved in the messiness of life. Right? Because this is a messy thought, isn't it? I mean, when you begin to talk to somebody about their sin and and the fact that it's pushing them away from Jesus, that's not a happy, I'm okay, you're okay kind of conversation. It's a burden that everybody shares in. Listen, I think it's a burden for the person going and trying to restore them. But that's what we're supposed to do. We do it. Because we love one another. It is, it is our love for one another that motivates us to try to restore one another when we stray in our relationship with Jesus. And that is the number one truth to understand today. Our love for one another, it leads us to restore one another. And by doing this, we are bearing one another's burden. Now, question we'll have is, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Why aren't we more faithful at doing this? I propose there are three reasons we don't do it, that we misunderstand things, right? I think we misunderstand what it means to love one another. Our culture has twisted the idea of love to the point that that it means just absolute, unconditional acceptance of, of everything. And we're told if you love people, you have to accept everything they do, everything they say, and everything they believe as, as good and okay. And, 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 and all things are equal. If, if, if you love them, you can never tell them that what they're doing is wrong. And so, the argument goes, that's what Jesus did. I mean, that's what Jesus did. Jesus just, he just loved people. And he just accepted them. And he accepted everybody. And if you ever tell someone that what they're saying or what they're doing or what they're believing is wrong, you are not like Jesus. You're a Pharisee. But there's a problem with that. It's not actually what Jesus did. Let's look at some of the things Jesus did. Right? Think about the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus comes and gets water and she's there. And he tells her to go and to get her husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You don't. You've got a lot of husbands, but the guy you're living with now, 
He ain't your husband. Now think about what he did there. Did he love her? Without a doubt. He, the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. I think he went there in part for her. He loved her enough that he went there to meet with her. It wasn't an accident that he met her at the well. He, he loved her enough to, to orchestrate events that he could be there. But did he, did he just accept her in her sin? Did he just say it was okay how you've been living in your sexual immorality? No, he did not. He absolutely called her on it so that she could be brought into a right relationship with him. He loved her, but he dealt with her about her sin. Or how about the woman caught in the very act of adultery? Caught in the very act of adultery, brought before Jesus. It doesn't get a whole lot more shameful than that. Now, did Jesus love her? For sure. Did Jesus forgive her for her sin? Absolutely. He said, neither do I condemn you. But what did the rest of the verse, the rest of that saying go on to say? Now go and sin no more. He loved her and he forgave her. But he dealt with her about her sin so that she could be restored in a relationship with him that she was meant to have. Or, or what about the rich young ruler? Who came to Jesus seeking eternal life. Did Jesus love him? Absolutely. Mark's account specifically says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And the man had a problem. What was it? He was an idolater. He, he was greedy. He was materialistic. Did Jesus deal with him about that? Or did he just let it go? No, he said, here's what you lack. Go and sell all that you have. All. Everything you have. Give all of that to the poor. And then you come follow me. And I will give you riches in heaven. He dealt with the guy about the very sin that was keeping him from God. From eternal life. Now here's an interesting thing about this story though. The Bible says that the rich young ruler was sad by that saying. Because he had great wealth. What did he do? He turned around and he walked away. Without eternal life, without Jesus. Now, here's the kicker. What did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, wait, 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 wait. Tell you what. Go get half your wealth. We'll negotiate. What would, what would you be willing to give to the poor? And then come follow me. Half, three quarters, one quarter. Whatever you're willing to give, just go give that. And then come follow me. Mm -mm, he didn't. You know what he, what he did? He let that kid walk away. Without life. Without salvation, without Jesus. But he never stopped loving him. His love didn't change. See, in none of those cases did Jesus just accept their sin. In every instance, Jesus called them on their sin. But his calling them on their sin, it was itself an act of love. He loved them enough to call them on their sin. He loved them enough to fulfill his own law. And try to over help them who were overtaken by sin. There is nothing loving about confirming someone in sin. And we'll talk about the damages and the dangers of sin in a minute. But I just want you to understand. There is nothing loving 
about leaving someone in their sin, about accepting their sin. There is nothing loving about telling someone who is living in sin that will destroy them. You're okay. Jesus is okay with that. That is the opposite of love. That is hate. We misunderstand love. And so we refuse to ever talk to anybody that's overtaken. We, we just accept it. And we move on as though it's an okay thing. And it's not. We misunderstand what love is, but we also misunderstand what do not judge means. Like loving... We're told that, that the worst thing you could do is to judge someone. I mean, how many of you have had a conversation and you've been told you were judgmental? I had a one time years ago before we came out here, a lady asked me, she said, tell me what you think about gay marriage. And so I told her, well, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. And that marriage is between a man and a woman. And she said, I don't know a lot about what the Bible says, but I know it says not to judge. And that just sounds judgmental to me. So the way the culture does it, go ahead and turn to Matthew 7. We're going to look at that. But to hear the culture at large speak, Matthew 7, 1, it is the most important Bible verse in the world. It overrules and it overrides everything else. Right? Judge not that you be not judged. That's the, that's the key verse to all of the Bible. All of the Bible rises and falls on judging not. So if somebody's doing something and if it contradicts something else in the Bible and you want to say, well, that's not what the Bible says. Judge not. That's more important than anything else. Judge not. That's the key verse. Everything rises and falls on not seeming or sounding or being judgmental. And so... We're all afraid. Who wants to be called judgmental, right? Who wants to be called a Pharisee? Because judgmental Christians, they're the problem with everything, aren't they? Right? I mean, man, you find an article on the Internet talking about the problems of the world. Man, it's judgmental Christians. The church in America is in decline. Why? Judgmental Christians. People don't want anything to do with Jesus. Why? Judgmental Christians. Global warming's destroying the world. Why? Judgmental Christians. I mean, they're responsible for everything. And who wants to be that guy? Who wants to be the person that's responsible for all the bad and evil and wickedness in the world? Well, none of us do. So if we're not careful, we'll capitulate to the world's view of this when the world's view of this isn't right. I mean, judge not that you be not judged. Now, to be sure, it says that, doesn't it? That's verse 1. But does that mean that we are never, ever, ever to say anything's wrong? Does judge not mean that under no circumstances can you ever tell someone that what they believe is wrong? That you tell someone that what they do is wrong? Does that mean you are never to judge between one thing or the other as right and wrong? One thing is good and one thing is bad. Well, if this was the only verse in the Bible, it would mean that maybe. But even in the context of Jesus saying that, it cannot mean that. Look, look at what Jesus goes on to say. Okay, judge not, be not judged. Now, drop down to verse 13. Enter. That's something we're to do, right? By what? The narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many 
but go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. There are few who finds it. Now, judge not. If it means that we're never to make a judgment, that means all ways are acceptable and all ways go the same way. But Jesus clearly, just a few verses later, says we have to make a judgment call about gates to enter and, and paths to walk. He makes it, we're to make a judgment, not only that, that one is good and, or best, but, but that one leads to life and another leads to death. That is a judgment call that you and I, as believers, we are called on to make. But that's not all. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Oh my goodness! Not only are we supposed to judge between gates and paths, but teachers. Just because somebody stands up and preaches, that doesn't mean it's right. We are to judge between a true teacher and a false teacher. A wolf and a sheep. That's a judgment call that we have to make. But if judge not is the only verse in the Bible, we can't do that. But Jesus says we're supposed to. But he goes on. Shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruits, you'll know them. Now we have to judge between trees. The fruit of someone's life. I mean, and that's what it's talking about. The result. But the way someone is living is a, a testimony about what's going on in their heart. But that's not a judge not. That is a, a fruit judging is what I've always had it called. But we are supposed to do that. We are supposed to judge the fruit. He goes on. And we're, he says... And I declare, oh, no, jump to verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these things of mine and, and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on a sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, now we're to judge between foundations for our life. Now, if judge not means I can never say anything's right or anything's wrong or anything's best or anything's worst. That means every gate is equal. Every path is equal. Every teacher is equal. And every foundation is equal to build the life on. But if that's the case... Jesus seems bipolar here, doesn't he? One minute he's saying, don't judge and never say anything's wrong. Seconds later, he's saying, judge between this and that. Judge between this and that. Judge between this and that. Whatever judge not means, it cannot mean that we never say something is right or something is wrong. Whatever it means... To say for Jesus when he said judge not. It cannot mean that you and I as believers are never to say that's right. That's right. And that's wrong. Jesus gives absolute judgments we are to make. And that's in one chapter. That's in half of one chapter. 
It's not even the rest of the Bible. What does judge not mean? Well, look at what he says. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck in your eye and look the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we don't have time to get into all of this, but here's the the basic idea. First, the measure that you use is how you'll be judged. What I've always taken from that is that we we judge by the Bible. How do we determine what's best or what's right, what's wrong, what's what's the wide gate, what's the narrow gate? We we follow this. How do we know what's the right foundation to build on and what's the wrong foundation to build on? We, we follow this. There is nothing judgmental about saying the Bible says. That's why I'm a big believer. If somebody asks you what's your opinion on an issue, a cultural issue that will lead you to be called judgmental, don't say, well, my opinion is this. Say, the Bible says. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be called judgmental. You probably will. But it does mean you're not judgmental. Secondly, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. Part of what it means to judge not is that I have to be actively working to live a holy life myself. Right? If, if I am overtaken in my sin and I'm not even trying to live for Jesus, I am a hypocrite when I say, well, look at what Scott's doing. That's a hypocrite. But if I'm working at it and if I'm striving and if I'm trying to crucify the flesh and live for Jesus, it's not hypocritical. It's not judgmental to say this is right and this is wrong. The big difference, right? Because here's what they'll say. Well, do you live a sinless life? No. Then how can you say someone else's sin is bad? Here's how you answer that. The difference is in my attitude towards the sin. See, the believer... The believer takes the side of God and His Word against their sin. Yeah, I'm judgmental sometimes. Sometimes I can be a jerk. Sometimes I have anger management issues. And that's a sin. And that's wrong. And I desperately want to overcome it in my life. On the other hand, the unbeliever takes the side of their sin against God and His Word. Well, yeah, I'm judgmental, but I mean, that's just how I am. Sure, I have anger issues, but if you had done the, seen the things I've seen, you'd have anger issues too. That's just a part of my makeup in life is that this is how I am. Well, the world's different now. You can't expect someone not to do that. That's how you answer it. Yes, there's sin in my heart that works its way out at times. But oh, my sin grieves me. Oh, my sin bothers me. And I pray daily for deliverance from my sin. And as long as we are grieved by our sin and we are striving to crucify our flesh and we are praying and seeking deliverance from our sin, we are not judgmental. We are not hypocritical when we say this is right and this is wrong. If we misunderstand what do not judge means, we will never go to anyone. We will never talk to anyone. We will never help someone be restored that's overtaken by their sin. Do not let the culture define judging. Let Scripture and Jesus define judging. And then finally, we misunderstand the danger of sin. 
we misunderstand the danger of sin. One of the one of the things I wrestled with is how to word this particular point. I, I was going to put it with the others, one of the others, and it would have been okay in either one, particularly the love. I thought about saying we just don't care enough about people to go to them, but I don't think that's the case. Instead, I think we forget how dangerous sin really is. We forget about the danger that the backslider is in, those who are overcome by their sin. I want us to look at a passage that explains this well. Turn to James 5, page 933. James 5, verse 19. Brethren, so let's start again. Is he talking to who? Christians, the church. Okay. If anyone, what, among you. So, this isn't a verse on evangelism. This isn't a verse that tells us to go out to the highways and the hedges to reach those that have never known Jesus Christ. Brethren, church, if any among you, if any other people are part of your church, if they want, if they wander from the truth. Right? That's an awful lot like being overtaken by sin, isn't it? If you wander from the truth and someone turn him back, someone bear their burden. Someone loves him enough to go and to restore him to Jesus. What happens? Let him know that he who turns a sinner and the heir of his way will what? Save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that's pretty serious, right? Now, he's talking to the church and he's referring to believers. And so the ones who wander from the truth are believers. They've believed in Jesus, they've repented of their sins, but now they have become overtaken by their sin and they have wandered from the truth. At that point, according to James, they are in extreme danger. They are in danger of death, their soul of death. Now, what we would like to say, in many cases people do, Say this refers to physical death. That if a believer is overcome by sin and lives in the air for too long, that God just kills them. And they die physically, but then they go straight to heaven when they die. That doesn't seem to fit the context. Throughout Scripture, when death is linked to sin. It's spiritual death. Particularly if it's connected to the idea of a soul. James is sounding the very scary warning that when a person wanders off the path of truth, they put themselves in a place that will lead to spiritual death. Now, as Free will Baptist, I believe in the possibility of apostasy. I believe that a person who is a believer 
through choices of their own free will, can turn from their faith and reject the hope that they have in Christ and become eternally lost. The phrase is an apostate. Now, I do want to make a distinction because there is a difference between an apostate and a backslider. An apostate has fully rejected the faith. A backslider is someone that is sliding away in their relationship with Jesus. There is a distinction. But here's an important concept with that. Every, every backslider, every person who's overtaken in a fault, every one of them is not an apostate. But every apostate was a backslider at one point. A person who believes can, through their own bad decisions, stray and wander from the truth. And we don't have time this morning to get into a long theological discussion about it. If you want to know more, come see me. I have a whole paper I wrote about it. But a person who is overcome by their sin can live in that for so long that what happens is their sin destroys their faith. Hebrews 3 talks about sin hardening our hearts and causing us to have an evil heart of unbelief so that we depart from the living God. I can't depart from God if I've never been with God, can I? Sin hardens my heart against God and the things of God. And the longer I go in my sin, the harder my heart becomes towards God and towards the things of God. And there is a very real possibility that I can go in my sin for so long and harden my heart so much that I will just say, you know what? I don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. I don't know if he's real and I don't care. I want nothing to do with that. And at that point, I'm eternally lost. Every person overcome by sin is on that path. Headed to hell. They're on a path that if they are not turned back, they will end up in hell. And so the person who loves them enough to go to them and try to restore them turns them away from the air of His way, saves a soul from death, covers a multitude of sins. There is a danger, eternal danger with sin. Seeking to restore those overcome by sin, it is not judgmental. And it is not unloving. In fact, seeking to restore those overcome by sin is probably the most loving thing we can do. It is far more loving than to comfort them on a path that will lead them to hell. I've used the illustration before, I know. But what would you think of me if one of my daughters wanted to drink strychnine? And I just said, but it makes them so happy. Oh, but come on. Isn't it judgmental for me to say that that would hurt them? No, I I love them and I accept them. And if their choice is to drink strychnine and play in the street, I just embrace that choice. Now, 
I would likely go to jail for that. If my children were six, seven, eight, nine years old. If I, if I embraced that and allowed that, I couldn't stand in front of the judge and say, I love them too much to tell them no. I just, it seems so harsh to say that it might kill them. The judge would say, you're a moron. You're going to jail. It is no different for us when someone is on a path that leads to hell. If what they are doing, destroying their soul, for us to say, oh, who am I to say what's wrong? Well, you and I were not, but the Bible is. And if the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong and it's destroying their soul. Who, what are we to say? Well, I just love them too much and what they're doing makes them happy. Well, then they'll be happy until they go to hell. It'll be because we were cowards that were afraid to try to restore them. We didn't love them enough to have the hard conversations with them. God, help us not to be cowardly. God, help us not to let the world teach us what love is. God, help us not to let the world define judging. God, help us to never forget the danger and the damage of sin. I was thinking this week, what would happen if I was overcome by sin? And somebody came to me to try to restore me. I thought, you know, I'm sure with my humble nature, I would receive the correction right away and be like, you're right, I'm terribly wrong. Well, that's, I'm bad. You know, the honest answer is that I have, I have authority issues in my, in my soul. And it is very unlikely I would handle it well at all. That's just the honest truth. Whoever came to me would likely for a season lose my friendship. But here's the reality. If their words sunk into my heart, and if God used that to turn me back to the faith and bring me back to Jesus, how thankful would I be for someone who loved me enough to risk my friendship for a season for the salvation of my soul, to restore me back to my relationship with Jesus. Going to someone may very well cost us a friendship in the moment. But if they turn back to the faith, man, won't they appreciate someone who cared them enough to have that hard conversation? One last thing and we'll close. In Galatians 6, Paul ends that section by saying this. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Here's what he's saying. If you think you're too important to take part in this work, you're wrong. If you think too highly of yourself to get involved in the messiness of someone's life, you're wrong. In fact, kind of what he says is a harsh statement, which he says several times in this book. But if you think you're too important... To go to someone and try to restore them. What you're really proving is that you're nothing. You're nothing in the kingdom. You're nothing. You're nothing. No matter who we are or where we are, we're not above the need to go to people who have wandered away from the truth. One of the lessons in this passage 
is that it's brethren. It's not pastor. I certainly, to be sure, I have a responsibility to do this. So do you. If you know of a brother or a sister that's strayed, it's overcome by sin, your responsibility isn't to come and tell me to go to them. Your responsibility is to go to them yourself, to love them enough to bear their burden and do what you can to restore them back in their relationship with Jesus. This is on all of us. This is one of the ways we love one another. Stand as our musicians.